So listeners, I want to open up with a statistic. In 2019, there are only 26 black women who are full professors in the United Kingdom. Yes, you heard me right, 26. And so coming from North America, obviously we talk a lot about how structural racism is a huge problem in the US and Canada. But coming to the UK has been a completely different terrain to learn about. And so today I'm really excited to have two amazing women with me in the studio today, Jaden Paulette. We'll be here to talk about, well, the state of Black studies in the UK, but also of uh, being Black in academia in the UK, which are, of course, very overlapping, but still distinct topics of discussion. Jade uh, tweets at Diva Nificent on Twitter, and I described her as a force to be reckoned with for Black <laughs> British Twitter, seriously. And she'll be going um, off to Oxford to do her PhD in history. And Paula Williams is actually also at UCL with me, and she is uh, the head of student success. But at the same time, she's wearing the other hat of being an MSc student at Birkbeck in psychosocial studies. And so from their fascinating experiences, I'm very excited to bring this to the podcast. So I'm Dr. Zain Yao, uh, representing the humanities at UCL, the former heart of empire and the home of eugenics, which I think is a very important thing to know <laughs> for this conversation. And you're listening to PhDiva's podcast, a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. Jade, what should we know about you? And then to Paul. Okay. Um, yeah, I think you kind of like <laughs> covered most of it. But um, yeah, I'm a black feminist historian. So my work focuses on uh, kind of black women's history in Britain, specifically the black women's movement during the 1970s and 1980s. So I very much look at how the movement was envisioning kind of other ways of being, you know, post empire. So um, yeah, it's just kind of looking at radical black histories in the UK. Um, most predominantly through oral history. So I talk a lot with like the women that were part of the movement. And yeah, I guess beyond that, you know, I'm kind of like a professional loudmouth on Twitter. I talk <laughs> a lot about, um, you know, as you said, the kind of state of things in the UK. So there being like 26 black women professors, um, you know, kind of the issues that black women scholars do face in terms of, um, you know, inaccessibility and I guess gatekeeping in academia. Um, so yeah, I, I would say, you know, oh, and I, I write a lot as well. So, yeah. And you do tons around London, like a lot of different activism and a lot of different talks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah quite, quite hectic. But um, yeah, I've done quite a few, especially this year, kind of um, talks and conferences um, from, you know, looking at like Black British feminism, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And Paula, you also have a very multifaceted and very busy schedule. Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, I work at UCL full time. Um, my main pro the main project I work on at UCL looks at the BME attainment gap or awarding gap. Um, so this is to address the disparities between students from BME backgrounds getting a first or two one in their degree or and white students. So um, it's mainly looking at the institution and things that we can change in terms of the way that we. Yeah, treat our students basically. And as you mentioned, I'm doing my master's, just finished my first year. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> really enjoying that. And that's in education, power and social change. And um, I run an organisation called Leading Roots and we support black students, um, particularly those students who are interested in going to, into higher education and we support them throughout the student life cycle. So starting off with students who are thinking about doing an undergraduate degree, we work with their parents to try and make sure they've got the same information and that they can support their child. Um, and then we also work with undergraduate and master students that are thinking about doing a PhD and we try and give them the information that they need to put them in a good position, hopefully to get funding, but we know mm -hmm. that's a challenge. Jade's mm -hmm. crap that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, even if it's just to make sure that they understand what that process looks like um, and also um, are connected with people who have done it so they know that it's possible. Mm -hmm. So just a quick aside for our non-UK listeners. So BME stands for Black Minority Ethnic. Sometimes it's also BAME, Black Asian Minority Ethnic, which is an acronym I've never encountered until I came to the UK mm. because I think it's a state-created acronym. Yeah, it's yeah. quite um, ridiculous. <laughs> quite ridiculous, yeah. <laughs>
I think that this conversation started because uh, Jade got into every PhD program she applied for, and, which was absolute <laughs> triumph and oh, very you. important. And also one thing I wanted to just illustrate with the whole 26 uh, black women full professors that these two women are going to be a part of this change. You know, this is what I yeah, believe and I want to see. But I think that, that even though it seems like such a, we're in such a dire state, like this is, I think that there's so much energy and excitement uh, and you guys are so much a part of that. And so Liz had, I think, to, responded to Jade's an amazing announcement and then like tagged me in it. And you're like, oh, Zion, you should interview Jade. And I was like, oh, a little, because again, I was just like, wow, this person is such a force to be reckoned with. I her Twitter and then I came across Paulette because I, I have been trying to figure out race within my own institution. Mm. Um, as of 2019, I'm still the first and only faculty member of color in my departments. Arts and Humanities has less than 6% faculty of color, which was 12 people last year. A friend of mine told me that when I came to the UK, I should get used to being the most melanin in the room. And for mm. our listeners who maybe don't remember, look like I am a light-skinned Chinese diasporic person. So that is where the threshold of things are right now. But so I'd love to hear from both of you, what things should we know about the current state of, of Black British academia or the, just the train of higher education in general as a way to start? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I would say is that this work around the quote-unquote BME attainment gap, I think is a move towards the sector acknowledging some of the issues within these institutions um, and it's nothing new they've always kind of known that there's a t- an attainment gap but it's always um, kind of been placed on the student and like looking at like let's do a mentoring program because the students need help mm-hmm. um, so I think some of the scholars that are coming through um, talking about race are actually being listened to now for the first time I think um, since this work has sort of been addressed. So I think in that that respect, we're at a good point. Um, but overall, I think there are a lot of people who think that they're quite liberal, who think that they're, um, that they're not a part of the problem, but ultimately they are. Mm. So I think we're just at a really weird stage where people are kind of realising that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I would also say, like, on top of that, in terms of, yeah, the kind of state of affairs, uh, particularly for, um, you know, black people in Britain when it comes to education, I think we often talk about, like, academia as this kind of, like, truncated, like, space that is, like, kind of separate to, like, you know, wider British society. And obviously, all of those kind of biases, you know, racism, um, you know, sexism, classism, et cetera, et cetera, are obviously all shaping the university space as well. I mean, that inaccessibility, that kind of um, being, um, you know, kind of structurally barred from so many different kind of opportunities starts from the very, very beginning of that, you know, our whole kind of like um, educational process and journey. So I think, you know, we often talk about university and it kind of like all of these problems seem to suddenly kind of like spring up, like, you know, when you get to university and it's like, well, actually what has been happening since we were, you know, we were free, you know? what have we been blocked from? What have we um, been discouraged from? You know, what has not been made possible for us? And I think it's also, you know, even myself when I, because I did a master's degree in race and resistance um, a couple of years ago. And even with that course, I remember applying and I was like, yes, like finally, this is going to be so exciting. You know, I get to talk about like, you know, histories that are pertinent to like my life and this is going to be great. I'm really hoping that there are going to be, you know, a lot more kind of like non-white students on the course. That was really not the case. (laughs) (laughs) That was definitely not the case. You know, Um, I was one of three black students. There were three black students on the course two Asian students and then the rest of it was like majority white all of um, like the majority of the teaching staff were white there were no like black um, kind of lecturers or tutors specifically on the course Um, and it always kind of interested me that you know for all of the students who you know were not white we were all kind of writing and kind of trying to think through things that um, kind of related to us or spoke to our lived experiences so obviously I look at black British feminism there was another um, woman on the course that looked at um you know afro-latina feminism and histories 
you know, so on and so forth. Whereas all of the white students were writing about people of color. Um, and I think that's also, you know, part of this inaccessibility discussion. I think, you know, so many times white scholars are given, you know, the access, the scholarships, like the kind of institutional backing to do projects on, um, you know, populations and communities and peoples that they're not actually part of or from. And they become the voices for those communities. Um, and, you know, that work is being mediated through the white gaze. Mm -hmm. Whilst for us, you know, getting a scholarship is like, it's it's a lot. It's mm -hmm. a really, really hard slog. So, you know, Paulette, the work that you're doing is like just completely incredible. I'm like yes. so happy um, that you're doing it. It's so necessary. And but it's interesting that you say that, though, yeah. even with sort of studying and writing about yourself and writing about your own mm. experience, that in its in itself is a completely different experience. I'm exhausted when I finish yes. my essays. Like, yeah. I, I want to sleep. I, and sometimes the things I'm writing about, I'm writing almost about myself. And mm. it, I'm like, I, it's really hard to work through. So you're right, you know, I think people who are not black or, you know, people of colour, white people yeah. doing that work, um, I think they're at such an advantage because they don't they also are. have to deal with that kind of emotional labour as well. Yeah. Like, they can put it at home. Like there's sort of this can, thing of where yeah. if we go into the archives looking at, at this work, it's often you're reading about violence against yeah. either yourself or the people you care about. Yeah. And it's something that's very active. You can't just like, you know, put down your work and go home because it's something that's lingering with you, right? It is. Yeah. It is. I was yeah. kind of like talking about that, like, a couple of weeks ago on on Twitter, um, I saw your tweet. Yeah, yeah. That's literally I was like, <laughs> I was like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> familiar experience. Like I was, you know, kind of going to class each week, kind of just consuming all of this violence against, you know, kind of anti-black violence um, against, you know, um, my community uh, communities, and kind of absorbing that all the time, and having to then, I think, your encouraged by the academy you know to then operationalize um you know kind of all of these histories and these actual lived realities that you're experiencing for kind of like academic access you know mm -hmm. so i think that's also a really difficult thing to deal with like this is not um you know in the abstract for us you know that these are our lives as well these are people we care about these are ourselves so i think there is, like you said, that distance that white scholars can create where it's like, oh, this is interesting to me. Like, this is yes. like, you know, kind of a point of like intellectual kind of like interest and excitement. And, you know, I'm going to study these communities because it's really interesting to me. Never investigate whiteness whatsoever. And then, you know, I get the scholarship and I get to be the voice on this and I get this, that and the other. Whereas the rest of us are really having to like work through, um, you know, all of these issues in real time. And yeah. that's a really big burden. It, it does take its toll um and that's also why i took like two years out between my masters mm -hmm. and applying for the phd just because like, i needed a break because yeah. it doesn't it doesn't stop either i mean even within my full-time job the work that i'm doing is so is about race yeah so you can see people or professionals who are doing the work who again just are not live they don't mm. they don't have the lived experience and it can be sort of a nine-to-five job where you're yeah. like oh, this is really sad yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so Whereas true. You're at home, like talking to your parents or talking to your partner or talking to your friends, and like you, you take it home with you because it's you. Yeah. And it's just, I think it, it plays out in so many different ways. I think being a black woman in in academia, it plays out both mm -hmm. academically and yeah, professionally. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's very much tied to what Sadia Hartman calls the afterlife of slavery, mm. right? That there's still this sort of power dynamic that, you know, under chattel slavery, um, enslaved Africans being made into resources in a weird way, like experience is now that commodity yeah. for so many non-black academics. And even when the academy says that they're more interested in issues of race, they're not noticing which people are doing that work yeah. and instead people as you're saying jay to end up being able to build their careers without without having to be self-reflective about where they're using black people as a resource yeah. in an institution that probably made us money on chattel slavery right yeah <laughs> yeah especially you know the uk like <laughs> you don't have to go that far back to like trace the roots to you know chattel slavery colonialism within all of these institutions and i think it's also funny you know because you mentioned that you know these academies or these universities even are um, starting to do this whole kind of, oh, we're ready now to talk about race. And it's like, you know, who is leading that research? Like, where is it coming from? You know, because 
there are even looking at the kind of really big universities who have decided to investigate the links between the university and the slave trade, which really won't take that long whatsoever. Um, you know, there are no kind of black scholars being kind of, you know, given the opportunity to look into this, you know, themselves or kind of at least be, form part of that research. So it's once again kind of like part of the gatekeeping. It feels very performative mm-hmm. for the moment that we're in now where, you know, I think a lot of people are um, kind of, yeah, having to perform to this new um, kind of, discourse that is going on in the public space around like race and um around kind of access so i i do find it interesting that these universities are like choosing now to decide that you know race is an issue all the while you know you've got students um you know of color who are like suffering (laughs) in those universities who are kind of speaking up about their experiences you know some are even protesting right now and are completely being kind of like brushed away by these institutions so it's an interesting kind of tension and contradiction and paradox that yeah i think it's difficult as well and i I don't really like to big up institutions especially i want to say that ucl is doing their um the eugenics mm. inquiry, right? And I can't remember the name of the academic that, leads it, that is leading it, but it is a black woman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know on that inquiry, I guess, panel, um, there are a lot of people of colour that are involved in that. Um, but I kind of feel like that's been pushed forward because of um, Ijeoma Chegbu, who mm. is a high-profile um, professor here at UCL, who um, is... The, Professor, is it? She's a provost envoy for race equality. Mm-hmm. I think it is. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have any black people or people of color that are in the position to influence these things when they happen, yeah. when they when they do happen, there are like just a million and one question marks around it. Like, why are you doing it like that? Or you know, yeah, the way that it manifests is never authentic, or that, and there are always issues yeah. you know what I mean so it's almost like a chicken and egg type situation this where it's it. like well you need people of colour involved in order for it to be done properly but if you have no people of colour in your institution then you're probably yeah. not going to do it properly it just ends up being sort of a white saviour project <laughs> yeah. yeah and I think they yeah I think for the most part they are you know and I, I think I also kind of struggle with this um, kind of aspect of the academy because I also wonder where our energies are like best placed as well, you know? Because I I don't know if I actually, well, actually I do know. I definitely don't want to do work like investigating the links between the university and the slave trade. You know, some people might Mm -hmm. find that, um, you know, kind of um, a useful kind of way to spend their time and their kind of intellectual um, kind of knowledge production time, I guess. But for me, I don't know. I feel like there are, there are other kind of streams of work or other ways of thinking um, and other ways of building solidarity that I'd probably be more interested in that are not maybe so kind of like, you know, mandated by the institution. Um, Because I also then wonder, um, it's almost like kind of like state making or like nation making, like what is then absorbed into, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of um, hegemonic uh, kind of frame of the institution, you know? Like, is is it supposed to be like, um, is this work supposed to be a counter history to what we understand or is it going to be built back in Mm -hmm. to how the Mm -hmm. you know the kind of uh the mythos of or the fantasy of how the university like imagines itself i think Mm -hmm. these are all of the things that we probably should be grappling with as well when we're talking about like you know these institutions waking up in 2019 to the issue of race like i see and i kind of feel like that is that's their responsibility mm-hmm. and I think they need to do that work yeah and that's great yeah but similar to you I'm a little bit sometimes like that's why I love leading roots yeah it's kind of like part of what we're about is celebration mm-hmm. and I wanted to position it in that way because I just think there are no spaces or very rarely are there spaces within the academy or in the institutions where we want to do race work and we're just like actually can we just celebrate can we just say well done yes. can we just say this is <laughs> you know what I mean like we don't do that because, you know, we work on outputs and measures and, mm. you know, KPIs and all that, which is important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm all for accountability and I think it's mm. essential. But I still think as black people, we need a space where we can just be like, yeah, go on. Yeah, like, <laughs> like, no, literally. Like, yeah, like, you know, what you've done <laughs> is huge. Like, it's a major achievement. Yeah. We're proud of you. Um, 
and yeah so we still do want to do a little bit of that work where we challenge set the set tower and we say look this is out of order mm. or, you know um the things that you're doing are wrong and, and you need to change um but like you i think a lot of my energy so much of my energy goes into like that side of things yeah. on the daily yeah. that i just I wanted to create a space where it's a little bit more happy. And it's more nourishing, I think, as well, <laughs> yeah, you know? Like, yeah. yeah, just, I think those spaces and, like, cultivating those sorts of experiences are, yeah, definitely oh, worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd love to talk a little bit more, perhaps, about the history of it, and, of course, Jade being really well-positioned. Like, mm. well, <laughs> like, how is, well, this is a huge question, but okay. uh, Black British history... Diff- like what are the major differences with African-American history okay. and like obviously there are differences but I say this also because I know that there seems to be much more attention paid sometimes to African-American literature and history yeah. in the UK because and I think as an Americanist that it seems like it functions as a form of racial disavowal of mm-hmm. like uh, it's so easy to point the finger and be like they were they are so terrible to black people over there yeah. uh, but I don't see I haven't seen black British authors get given the same space on syllabi or in conversations. And and part of it, I know that a, a friend of mine, Rita Gale, who has part of this fantastic group, um, Anticipating Black Futures, told me that it had to do in part with the that the civil rights movement or a civil rights movement didn't happen in the UK in quite the same way. So I was wondering if you could get yeah. into that, Jade. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, just to kind of like... Uh, draw upon your point <laughs> on the way that yeah kind of black American history is very much kind of you know given a platform here um, I would say way more than black British history mm-hmm. um, you know we are taught from the very beginning about um, you know when it's black history month we learn all about the civil rights struggle we learn all about the key figures in the civil rights struggle we learn all about um, you know the kind of legacies of racism in the US and there is not one mention of Britain like I didn't throughout my whole and this is up until I did my masters and I chose to then look at you know kind of black British histories I did not learn anything about black people in Britain. Um, So yeah, that very much kind of informs obviously my work and like what I'm kind of trying to do um, when I look at the black women's movement and kind of, you know, black histories more widely in Britain. So, um, you know, I always say, I, I never want to make it as if black people haven't been in Britain from the very beginning um, because they have, you know, um, they really have. But of course, in terms of the more kind of like recent history, we're talking about that kind of post-1948 moment, you know, with the Windrush generation. Um, and I think, I, would, I guess the one of the major differences in the histories between maybe like a black American history, although even that actually this could be contested but um obviously you've got people from all over the diaspora coming to the UK to form this or eventually form this kind of like black civil rights struggle so to speak uh like I said don't get me wrong I know that lots of people came from the diaspora to the US as well but I think obviously there's a specific history of that migration to Britain you know in that post-war world um yeah where people were quote-unquote invited to Britain and then were faced with, you know, white racial terrorism Mm -hmm. when they came. Mm -hmm. So, you know, eventually kind of different modes of resistance um, kind of, you know, started springing up. So you had Notting Hill Carnival, which, you know, is, I I would say, one of the most original forms of, like, black protest Mm -hmm. and celebration at the same time in Britain. Um, You know, you had the Black British Panthers, who were very much, like, kind of influenced, of course, by uh, Malcolm X coming to Britain in the 1960s um, and kind of African and Caribbean uh, liberation struggles taking place throughout the diaspora. Um, So, yeah, these kind of histories are very, very foundational, um, I would say, to kind of black British people's narratives and kind of histories here. But it's not something that we learn about. It's, It's not something that many of us actually even have access to. You know, so many people don't know which books to read. They don't know you know, who are the kind of most prominent figures or, you know, the most prominent groups. Um, You know, black women were really at the epicentre of so much of this organising. You had, you know, people like Olive Morris, Stella Dadzi, um, Beverly Bryan, who were all kind of really, really, really key figures um, in fashioning a black British feminism specifically, which was also very different from black American feminism. Um, because it very much was tying together those kind of, you know, 
they were protesting, they were fusing kind of anti-colonial discourse with their experiences here. They were talking about intersectionality in the 1970s. So these are all of the histories that are so foundational to what we're experiencing now, but you know, we don't really know about it on a wider scale. So yeah, it's interesting just because we do have our own histories here, you know, um, that people fought so hard for um, and that are kind of routinely just erased from, you know, our kind of understandings of uh, the genealogies of black resistance globally. So I say sometimes as well, even in our conversations, like our oral history as well, because mm-hmm. these are not people that are like, half the time most of them are still alive you know just speaking to my mom or you know Mm -hmm. speaking to um, people that were involved in like the supplementary school movement and like people who were um, who were in your family or your you know I think a lot of the time we think about history as just being so far back Mm. and maybe there's I don't know whether it's to do with could be the pain that's associated with with that time but I feel sometimes we don't really have the conversations when yeah. that history is is literally probably in your house. In our kitchen, yeah. like kitchen table, <laughs> in our living rooms. Yeah. It's so true. But I think it's also, you know, like just because at the moment I'm doing an oral history project where I talk to uh, black women that came to Britain, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that kind of, like I said, post-Second World War era. And I think, because often their grandchildren are in the room and they're like, I've never heard, like, yeah. my grandmother talk about any of this. And it's like, but have you asked? You know, like, do we... But I think that's also, you know, that's also part of the access that I have as a scholar, you know, like, you, you get taught the right questions to ask and, you know what to kind of look out for. And um, so I think that's also part of that whole kind of educational process, you know, like, are we having those conversations with our grandparents? Do we understand it as history even? Because it's not taught as history. And I think that's also part of it. It's not seen, they're not seen as historical subjects, you know, and that's a really big thing. Yeah, Because it's not the school that's teaching you that, like, say, like, this is what history is. And I think that intergenerational kind of... um, conversation and relationship is kind of lacking a little bit in our community and like you say like not knowing how to approach it because you know my gran she passed recently Mm. but she just having conversations with her sometimes it was like if she was in the mood because it's not written down the same way as you know a lot of other histories I think we're losing a lot of that. And I think if we had it, a lot of our young people would view their position in this country so differently. Yeah. Because, you know, we did resist, you know, yeah. we did have movements, we were organised. And I just think a lot of that is definitely being lost. I agree. But I think even in that, like, you know, in terms of resistance, it's also looking at, like, the everyday modes of resistance, you know, because not everyone was part of, like, you know, like a revolutionary group. So I think... It's also kind of regarding our grandparents or our mothers or whoever it is as historical actors, um, but just within their kind of like quotidian everyday ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's also kind of like part of, you know, um, there's like so many different kind of like young black women historians who are really coming up at the moment. And I definitely love being um, part of what I consider to be like a critical mass of people kind of rethinking, you know, what is considered history, mm-hmm. um, you know, who is considered a historical actor and what is worthy of kind of historical study. So, And I think it's really important for the rest of us from uh, the former colonies or, or elsewhere to know about this history. And I'm thinking here of... Uh, a controversial scene in the recent season of She's All That, um, which presented a sort of apol- uh, black Britishness as being apolitical. Yeah. Would you like to maybe talk a little oh, bit about that? she's got to have it. She's got to yeah, have it. I'm so she's sorry. Yeah, she's got to have it. Yeah. Yeah. I got cancelled today, by the way. Yeah. I saw that. <laughs> Yikes. Like, <laughs> life comes at you fast. Um, <laughs> yeah, the second season wasn't good, so it had to go. But that scene, <laughs> because it really created... Did you see the conversation, Paula? You know what? I didn't really engage with the conversation. Sometimes, yeah. you know, I watch things and I'm like... Mm, I didn't like that. And then yeah. I see it blowing up on Twitter and I just think, oh, no, let me leave that yeah. alone. Like, I don't want to go into <laughs> Too it. Too messy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I kind of, like, dipped my toe yeah. into the discourse <laughs> and I was like, okay, this is going a bit far. <laughs> let me come back out. But um, I think... I think that is how um, kind of black British people are definitely kind of reimagined within a more kind of, like, 
I guess if you don't have a, a more black internationalist leaning that's kind of more global, mm-hmm. I can definitely see how, because like I said, these histories have been erased, right? So if you haven't engaged with like our narratives, our stories, um, the history of empire and slavery, I think it's very easy to rewrite like, and kind of, and I think hold up black British people as a foil to like this kind of like radical, you know, because in that scene, it's kind of, um, what is the lady called? I can't, oh, Dar- okay. Darla? I can't even remember her name. Yeah. But Nola. Um, Nola Darling, that's yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. That's like, but, um, you know, Nola is definitely kind of held up as this kind of like, you know, uh, radical kind of forward thinking, progressive black American um, who has a very rich history. And the character that she is dating is very much someone that, you know, is very docile, like like you said, apolitical black British person without any kind of history to recommend him, a very dodgy accent going on, um, <laughs> I think. But, you know, that is, that is part, that's what historical erasure does, you know. Mm. Um, it, it does kind of lead to these sorts of representations where, everything is kind of simplified. Oh, you chose whiteness, like you chose to go to England. And it doesn't reckon with, like I said, those legacies and genealogies of slavery and empire of kind of, you know, economic migration um, and kind of the different themes of displacement, creating homes somewhere else, resistance. These are all, you know, these are complex things that really need working out. And I think being squashed into like a a Spike Lee two minute frame really just, you know, it it really didn't do it justice. And I, the the politics were just so lazy. So I think, yeah, I, I definitely want to, I don't want to get into representational politics too much because that's not really, you know what I mean? That's yeah. not really like where I lean necessarily. But it is interesting in terms of how black British people are regarded and even how sometimes I think how we think about ourselves, yeah. you know, yeah, that's yeah, also part of it. Like I said, if you don't see or if you don't know that history or you don't regard it as history, how does that shape how you then like engage with it, you know, or how you think about yourself and how you've like ended up here. So, yeah, yeah. I just remember like growing up just kind of really pop culture was like about American culture, mm. you know, like that was what we aspired to. Yeah, uh, like all the TV programs because we just didn't really have them here, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I, I kind what I like about young people, young black people today, I think they value um, their own. They're creating almost creating their own culture or their own identity around what it means to be quote unquote black British. Mm. Um, I can say I've always felt like I've never really felt British. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's probably from my mum. Yeah. It's just like, you know, no, you're, you're always Indian. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. You, know, you go to Jamaica and it's like... They're like, no. <laughs> and they're like, no. You're British. <laughs> yeah. So I think, again, on Twitter, but I think I saw someone kind of explain it as like this kind of... Um, not an orphan but like you know you don't you don't really identify with either Mm. culture that much you're not comfortable in either um yeah on either side but i think young people now are are really kind of reimagining or like redefining what it means to be black british and i like that yeah because at least they're they're rooted in something that they identify with and they're not trying to look outside of that to try and you know validate their blackness almost as yes. well you know because yeah. what's coming up now is very much around yeah caribbean culture but then also african culture mm. like all of it's dope like yeah i think that's important um and when i was growing up it was a little bit different mm. Mm. no i agree i agree i think we're definitely like seeing a diasporic kind of like exchange happening yeah. in real time which yeah. is really beautiful to see i would also say though i think sometimes within um our conversations about black Britishness, and it's obviously something I mentioned on Tuesday at the event, Paulette, like, I sometimes think that people who maybe are not, who don't have citizenship in Britain or are not positioned as black British are very much left out of the conversation of what it means to be black in Britain, you know? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, so that's also what I would like to see come to the fore a bit more when we're having these discussions, you know, like, there are people being detained, like, right now, you know? Like, how do they, how do we factor them in into, you know, what we understand as, you know, black experiences Mm -hmm. in this country? Um, I think sometimes we definitely kind of privilege... um, 
you know, narratives and kind of people who have like either been here for like generations, yeah. like kind of, both, you know, my grandmother came in the 1950s as well. Um, or kind of, you know, people that, like I said, do have citizenship. And there's, I think we do have to really reckon with the kind of precarious nature yeah. <laughs> of, yeah. you know, black Britishness totally. as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. we've, we're seeing it right now in real time with the Windrush generation. Like mm-hmm. citizenship, um, you know, can be taken away on a whim mm-hmm. um, because it's mandated by the state, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a kind of uh, fiction of white supremacy. So I, I also do think in terms of black Britishness, it's what, when I'm talking to like black British feminists who organized in the 70s and 80s, they're always like, we used black Britishness as a location. You know, we used it to kind of like, theorize through and understand our positionality in the world and you know how these different histories were kind of um, intersecting and interacting with each other but it's not something that we're kind of wedded to we're not Mm -hmm. trying to have access or be represented as like British or Mm -hmm. you know be part of this kind of like wider um, you know I want to be black and I want to be included in Britain and you know it's about fashioning other modes of resistance you know imagining other worlds other ways of being Um, so yeah that's also what I'd like to see about that conversation as well I think I think that's maybe what my mum was saying when she was like, <laughs> yeah. <"You're not> <laughs> My mum said the same thing. She's yeah, like, nah. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's something going on where it's like the necessity of, as you say, like recognizing the specificity of the location, mm-hmm. but without sort of fetishizing the state. Yeah. yeah. Right? And like the sort of artificial divisions that that creates. And I think yeah. that some, in diasporic discourse, sometimes we see how fixating too much on place in the relationship to nation almost leads to anti-immigration attitudes to other peoples of color, even within your own group. Yeah, for sure. I think we're definitely seeing that with... Yeah, I think we're seeing, like, nativist um, movements kind of, like, you know, crop up in certain parts of the world. And I think that is um, where that sort of, like, weddedness, that kind of obsession with nation, with being included in the processes of the nation kind of leads to, you know? Um, And it does lead to that anti-immigration sentiment because what the nation does is, you know, it establishes what we understand to be an imagined community, that kind of division between us and them, you know, that very kind of like fixed borders situation. It really can have you leaning into some really wild arguments Mm -hmm. if you're not careful. So that's why I'm always a bit like, okay, let's not get too kind of like attached to, you know, this idea of being included in Britain. Like, what are we fashioning that is different? Like, it's it's not me being against the term black Britishness. It's more me kind of just challenging the scope of what that can encompass, um, you know. And also I'm here for people rejecting it. I'm here for people embracing it. But like, I I do want to see some kind of like complexities and kind of the naughtiness of what that entails um, to kind of be spoken about a bit more. Mm. And I guess as well how other people see black Britishness. Mm. Because I think I, I, I think the time when I felt least British was the, <laughs> the um, opening ceremony at the Olympics. The Olympics, yeah. When they were just like, and here's the black people. And it was just <laughs> like this, this boat for Windrush and then Dizzy Rascal. And I was like, oh, is that what you think of me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that it? That, yeah. 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 Kind of, um, yeah, I think the way that we're viewed by white people or by society generally in this country plays out again within academia workplaces, mm. etc. Um, I think that's quite important. It is, for sure. Yeah. And I was wondering, perhaps, could you talk a little bit more about uh, leading Roots work in this area? Because you're working with so many black young people who are thinking about entering academia. Like, what sort of attitudes are you working with? What's, what do your programs try to, try to do um, in terms of what resources you're trying to give them? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I really want young people to know um, when I meet them is that these institutions don't validate them. Mm-hmm. And, like, they have so much to bring to these universities. And I think especially for students that are going to a Russell Group University, sometimes when they get here, it's like they don't want to rock their boat. It's like they're just so happy to be here yeah. that it's like, oh, let me just leave. And don't get me wrong, I know some really powerful students <laughs> who are, like, outspoken, <laughs> um, student activists mm. who are amazing that I work with. But not every student's like that. Do you know what I mean? It's like what you touched on earlier. Like, not everyone wants to be an activist. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't have to be just because you're black. Yeah. So um, I think it's kind of just letting them know that it's okay to speak up when something's not right. Um, 
but in a but it doesn't have to be in a way that's like you know you want to be a student officer or whatever it's just letting people know that you you have a right to be here um and giving them that confidence i think one of the other things is around decision making like why do you want to go to that uni or why do you want to study that course is it you that wants to study that course or mm. is it your parents that want you to study mm. that course and then that's why we have the parents there because it's like well why do you want your child to study that course mm-hmm. um so i think a lot of it is around informed decision making and also positioning yourself in the institution as valuable to that institution as well which i know is difficult because when you get here there's a lot that you have to deal with um but I think knowing as well that what you're experiencing isn't in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been in situations or in rooms where we start to have these discussions with black students and students just being so upset because literally they thought it was just me. I thought mm-hmm. it was just me that couldn't speak to my lecturer. I thought it was just me that, you know, mm-hmm. didn't really didn't really feel like I fit in. And I think the more black students speak out about what's happening or just, you know, having these conversations, this podcast, for example... Someone else that's listening who maybe isn't as confident or vocal will just think, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I understand that, you know, I'm, it's part of something else. So you mentioned that uh, helping the, the students and their parents be critical about what disciplines they wanted to study. Like, is there a particular bias towards, like, STEM subject versus humanities subjects or social? Is that part of the conversation? kind of more vocational courses where you can say that your child's a doctor, your child's a lawyer, (laughs) (laughs) your child's an engineer. Um, But, yeah, I think, you know, being open to the arts um, Mm -hmm. and, like, humanities subjects, knowing that they're not, you know, quote-unquote Mickey Mouse subjects. They're, like, subjects that have... um, that can lead you to amazing careers. Um, and I think sometimes for us as a community, education is such an investment mm-hmm. that you want to see something that comes out at the end of it that's very tangible and lucrative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it makes sense that you'd want to do something really, really vocational. But it's just, again, making those informed decisions and actually understanding what that means and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and I think as well empowering the parents because what you're telling your child at home sometimes is different to what the school's telling your child. Um, and I think sometimes the schools are very good at persuading students, black students, not to pursue things that seem am- ambitious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, no, don't apply there. It's really hard. It's like... Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and the amount of times I speak to black students who say that, yeah, my school said don't apply to UCL, my school said don't apply to Oxbridge or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the be-all end-all is going to Oxbridge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think if that's something you want to do, you should be encouraged and you should understand how to do it. You should know what it means to actually be at that institution and what that experience is going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um but equally, you know, I went to Middlesex University, which is like a post-92 institution. Um, what does that mean? Sorry, just because. <laughs> post-92 <laughs> institutions are universities that were like polytechnics back in the day. Mm. And they were converted into universities. So there, um, there's a Russell Group institution. It's like a research intensive institution. They focus mm. very much on research. Those institutions are seen as more te- teaching intensive. Mm. I guess the institutions, they focus a lot more on, on teaching oh, in that you. respect. Um, and I think uh, the fact that most of our students are going to those institutions I think sometimes when we talk about Oxford and Cambridge it's a bit of a distraction to what is actually happening what is actually happening is that majority of our students are going to post 92s so I think again the decisions that you're making it's not just go uni because you know yeah that's what you're meant to do do you want to go uni? Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> and if you don't want to, then let's look at your other options. And if you do want to, just make sure that they're a little bit more prepared, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember, for instance, seeing that there's this, like, the largest ever donation to the humanities, I think, at Oxford, but sort of pointing out that if the majority of black students and students of color are not at these institutions, who is really benefiting from this sort of work that ends up feeding back into this whole cycle of basically colonial knowledge, as it were, right? absolutely. But I think it's also, like, about 
like I love that you've just said that in terms of like Oxbridge being a distraction because I was just having this conversation with like one of my best friends she went to Cambridge and I think each year there's obviously this like kind of obsession of like 10 black students (laughs) got into Cambridge or (laughs) Oxbridge in general and it's you know a travesty um, etc and I do think but the majority of us you know because I I didn't go to Oxford for like my my undergraduate degree or my master's I went to Leeds which once again is still a Russell Group University so um, there's definitely obviously a level of kind of access within that but at the same time I do think so much of the conversation in Britain is centred specifically around Oxbridge specifically around like black experiences in Oxbridge and it's like okay but what about what about everyone what else about like 90% 99.9% <laughs> of the rest of us who are going <laughs> elsewhere and are also yeah. facing like all of these different barriers like you know kind Kind of all of these um kind of yeah really hostile experiences at time gap, you know it. they're still dropping out they're still you know reporting through the national student survey the nss that they're having an awful time mm-hmm. like i just i think it's it's not a good use of all of our energy to keep going on about Oxbridge. yeah I, mean, I agree Thanks, David Lammy. It's, <laughs> yeah. It is important, but it's not as important as I think what's really yeah, going on. It's not every August that we need to have like the same <laughs> same conversation. Like it's really not at all. Um, and I think it's also part of that sort of like exceptionalism, isn't it? It's this kind of idea of like, oh, you're like these like. 10 brilliant minds mm-hmm. are going to change Britain mm-hmm. by, you know, nature of, like, being at Oxbridge. And it's like, that's not that's not how this works whatsoever, you know? Like, we really need to, like, look at the different experiences that, you know, all black students are having at different institutions. Mm-hmm. I would say especially, like, post-92 institutions yeah. as well, because I think that especially is very, like, invisibilised from the conversation. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, I love that you're kind of, like, focusing on those experiences as well and bringing that, you know, to the fore. And that's my growth, you know, because yeah. even though I went to Post-92, I've worked at uh, Russell Group for a decade. Mm-hmm. So I I got very much into, the, well, where are all the black students here? <laughs> like, I was into that. And when yeah. I started dealing roots, that's where I was. That's where my mind mm-hmm. was. And so, yeah, with my own growth, it's kind of reflecting on that and just being like, hold on a minute. Yeah. I mean, it is bad, but... Yeah. There are other things going on. There are other things going on. That's true. I think it's really insightful the way that you guys talk about that exceptionalism being a type of distraction, but also then a type of erasure, right? Mm -hmm. And also perhaps a way of of shaming and also like using sort of a model minority as a wedge against all the other groups, right? Um, It ends up being more... uh, It ends up playing back into the hands of... Well, anti-black projects mm-hmm. in general, mm-hmm. um, definitely. Absolutely. And so I think that a theme that we're coming to right now is sort of thinking about accessibility. And so we're talking about accessibility to institutions. But of course, something that one deals with a lot on Twitter is a sort of question of discursive accessibility. <laughs> <laughs> and I would love to hear Jade talk about uh, this a bit more. Yeah, discursive accessibility. I really like that yeah. phrase. That's really cool. <laughs> um, yeah, um, as someone that definitely kind of like speaks in different registers and I think is also like specifically positioned now as an academic on Twitter, which is a very, it's a very specific framing. It's been very interesting because it's only like been the past year of my life. Like when I've kind of, you know, spoken a bit more about my experiences, whilst not actually even being a student at that point, but hey, you know, just kind of, <laughs> you know, kind of people are like, oh, you're an academic. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, because yeah. what does it mean to be an academic, really? It's true, like, it's true. <laughs> but I think with that, you know, I think it does then... I think people have a very specific kind of understanding of like who you are and like kind of, um, you know, I kind of, like I said, I speak in different registers. So sometimes I will be talking about something and I'll use whatever terminology feels most comfortable to me. Obviously, you know, that will be informed by what I've read, like, you know, um, and that's a mixture of like academic texts. Like, I don't know what, you know, I guess if you're going to call it a non-academic text, but that's even... That's even a bit of a shaky category in and of itself. But, you know, um, I've definitely kind of (laughs) received a lot of uh, criticism at different times for kind of like different terminology that I've used that like, um, you know, and it's interesting. There's different kind of levels of feedback. Some people are like, oh, this is really great. Like, I didn't actually understand this. Like, you've mentioned this and I've gone to look it up and now I'm going to like use it, you know, a bit more. And other people are like, why are you using this? Like, this is really inaccessible um, you know, you're being elitist by using this terminology. And this is me just kind of like tweeting on my own like personal 
Twitter account. Like, you know, it's not me, like, teaching a class or, right, like, right. you know, publishing an article. That, like, so those are the things that I get, you know what I mean? And don't get wrong, even in Twitter, like, I think there is space for, like, someone to be like, oh, actually, I don't actually understand what you're saying. Could you explain it more? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that we're trying to, uh, democratize knowledge here you know I'm not trying to kind of like keep it in this sort of like ivory tower mm-hmm. kind of thing so you know if someone comes to me and is like oh you know I don't actually really understand what you're saying could you please kind of break it down a bit more I'd be happy to have like that conversation but I think sometimes people see like you use a term and I get it don't get me wrong there's legitimate kind of um, you know arguments to be made about inaccessibility discursive inaccessibility in academia you know the way that language is kind of leveraged um, against you know especially kind of black students um, to maintain like white gatekeeping. So I think people already, you know, kind of are quite charged up by that, which I completely get. But I think as like just, you know, a sing- like, I'm just one person, <laughs> one black woman scholar, like just, you know, kind of using my Twitter account to like think through so many different things. Like I'll be talking about Love Island one day and next minute I'm talking about, you know, academia. So I, I do think sometimes there's a lot of pressure particularly put on like black women to like kind of be everything to everyone and kind of like, you know, be you know quote unquote accessible in certain and it's like okay this is twitter the the whole point is that we have this wealth of like different experiences like different knowledges if you find someone that you feel kind of speaks to you a bit more or kind of like you understand you know a bit more without having to maybe do all of this heavy lifting and that's more of a natural process for you then you can follow them like, <laughs> no but it's, it's really that Basically, simple you know it like it's, it's yeah. twitter like it's, it's actually twitter um so yeah i think that's that's where i stand on it i i think there are definitely legitimate arguments to be made about how discourse is used how it's leveraged but i think it's the way it's approached and i think you know I think someone's positionality really informs how other people engage with them in that space. Because I definitely see a lot of lot of men on Twitter saying what they want to say, like with a lot of different language. And I don't really see that level of anger kind of necessarily directed at them in the same way. So I do think it is interesting to occupy that space as a black woman, especially in a Britain where there are 26 black women professors and someone to kind of say you shouldn't be using this language like you shouldn't be doing this you know I I do think that's yeah it's just very interesting to me I feel like I've benefited so much as a non-black person of color with the fact that I feel like I came in with a year with so many amazing black feminist (laughs) events have been going on there was uh, they brought uh, Angela Davis came uh, Sadia Hartman came Christina Sharp came (laughs) um, and but I thought was really interesting when we were talking earlier Jade you said that just the way that the curriculums are structured right now, even yeah. though there is acknowledgement of like work by Patricia Hill Collins and Audre Lorde, sub- people are not also updating it with like the latest work by black yeah. feminists, right? Yeah. And- you know, all of these kind of names that you've just mentioned, so like Saidia Hartman, Christina Sharp, like they were not writers that I came across within that whole year. And, you know, it, it does bring to mind in terms of, like I said, the way the curriculum is kind of formulated here. Who Who is shaping the curriculum? You know, I had all white lecturers, like what are they directing us towards um what are we encouraged to read um and and i think also even within that you know all of the uh women that you mentioned are all american um kind of professors you know so where are the black scholars in britain you know who is talking specifically about um and there are definitely people talking specifically about black experiences in britain but they are never given that like space like you know that that space on the uh, curriculum i remember when angela davis was over and she was saying that um, you know, when she was teaching in the late 1980s, a text that she always drew upon was this like amazing like Black British feminist text called "Charting the Journey," uh, which is written by like a, a range of women, um, amongst them like Gail Lewis, uh, Pratiba Palmer, um, you know, various people, um, and that was a really key text to her. She was like, "Why, why are you guys not learning about this?" And I was like. I mean, you know, so I think even they, you know, they recognize, I think, the the kind of like stature and the space that they're given, even when they're invited over here, that, um, you know, black scholars in Britain really aren't. So it is interesting the way like the curriculum kind of directs us towards certain people um, and then, you know, by way of doing that kind of completely excludes whole pools of knowledge and theoretical work and and kind of different ways of knowing and I guess resisting as well, which is really key. On the one hand, it's fantastic that these resources are being used to bring these wonderful scholars in, Mm. but also what sort of work does it allow these 
what colonial institutions to do where they get to, you know, get the kudos for bringing in a black scholar without having to put any of the resources into making sure that they're going to be black people who can come through their own institutions yeah. to these spaces. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, that's like such a specifically like British thing to do, you know. Um, I definitely think it's about, you know, not trying to facilitate an infrastructure here, you know. Um, I think inviting black American scholars really gives them, you know, it's, it's kind of shiny, it's like celebrity and it's very exciting and you know people will come. Um, but the kind of like harder work of actually, or not even harder, but like the work that should be going on of like kind of like investing in and kind of um, supporting and nurturing like, you know, black British students here. And like you said, to actually come and show their research like that you know it's once again what is regarded as like um you know scholarly uh research what is like regarded as rigorous um and i think you know even when i was doing race and resistance in the history department um at leeds they <laughs> there was a section of like white military historians you just already know (laughs) you just already know there was a section of like white military historians who um you know we were all kind of like told to like get up and present our research and i literally got like ripped to shreds they were like this is not like like this is so subjective it can't be considered history like what are you doing isn't this like a vanity project and it's just yeah and it's interesting like what you know white men see as like they see them doing military history as like them not being invested or not being subjective mm-hmm. or having this like really nice distance mm-hmm. where they can like, you know, write about something that has nothing to do with them. And I'm like, this is like, you know, this is all of your like history mm-hmm. tied up in it. It's like you being here right now is, you know, so kind of ingratiated within these histories. Like this is also about you, like you are completely subjective. So I, I do think as well, even with like, um, like, you know, younger black British researchers, we are very much kind of discouraged sometimes from like actually, you know, talking about our own histories, our own narratives, because it's not seen as like, like I said, it's not seen as rigorous. It's not seen as like a proper academic objective exercise, which we all know doesn't, it doesn't even exist. So, yeah. One of the things that we did for, um, we had an event in June called Black in Academia Live. Mm. Um, and a, a part of that was a, a section called Disrupting the Discourse, where we put a call out for students who are like undergrads, postgrads, uh, researchers, mm. just come and talk about your research or like what you're interested in or subject. Um, and I think in this country, students don't really have a platform to do that. When they're engaged mm. by the institution, the institution wants to know about your woes and your troubles and, yeah. and the racism you've experienced. <laughs> in life. But they don't actually want to hear about your thoughts and your ideas mm-hmm. and um, what's important to you academically. And so that space was really important because there was no one judging you. Mm-hmm. Like we, we're just all there. We just want to hear what you have to say. We have people talking about, um, you know, sexual health in the black community, black um, mathematicians, um, uh, African-centered approaches to psych- psychology. And, you know, I think creating those spaces where black students can just get get used to sharing their ideas and understanding that their ideas are valid and important yeah i think is a good preparation for being in spaces like that where they're they're going to be told that what they have to say really isn't isn't that important which is awful it is i was not prepared i was like oh we're all sharing research don't get me wrong obviously it was definitely like the tension was in the air even before i started presenting but i was like oh i'm sure it'll be fine and then (laughs) but yeah they just kind of like went in um and i think that sort of experience can be really really discouraging i mean i definitely was like okay why am i even you know kind of yeah if no one else has ever said to you actually no i really i love that idea and it's really not only is it important for you to express that idea but your idea is important to me yeah exactly exactly and you're making like a valuable contribution Mm -hmm. to you know like so i i think yeah, black students here really don't get that encouragement, like, whatsoever. And so I think we're, we've already touched on this a little bit, but I would love if you could sort of recap some of the the names of black British feminist thinkers that we should know about and what yes. books should we um, keep our eyes out for. Yeah. And any other um, advice that you'd like to, to give that you haven't already touched upon? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> black British feminists. Um, so I've mentioned, uh, like I said, Gail Lewis, um, 
who is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, really, really an incredible uh, person. Uh, Stella Dadzi, um, Olive Morris, who passed away, unfortunately, in the 1970s, but was like absolutely foundational to Black British feminism. You know, she was part of the Black British Panthers. She helped set up like the Manchester Black Women's Co-op. Uh, she went to China, made links with their kind of anti-colonial struggles over there at the time. So there was so much like, you know, when I speak to the women in the movement, they're always like, Olive was really everything to, you know, what we were trying to do. Um, a few others who are really key are uh, Suzanne Scaife and Beverly Bryan, who together with Stella Dadzi wrote like this absolutely foundational text called uh, The Heart of the Race. Yeah. My mum handed that one down to yeah. me. <laughs> so that's a, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a black like kind of mother hand down for sure. Like it's about like black women in Britain, you know, following the Second World War and a different kind of like, labor struggles the different like modes of resistance um they were all part of a group called oad the organization of women of african and asian descent um in the late 1970s and late 1980s so definitely a group that i would say everyone should research because what they were talking about back then is so much of like the conversation that we're still having right now you know they were having it at that stage um and another book that i mentioned earlier charting the journey um which was written by like i said girl Lou. Lewis, Jackie Kay, Pratiba Palmer, like there are so many different uh, women that contributed uh, to that. And it, it is just a kind of like beautiful anthology almost. Um, and I'm just trying to think of like a couple of other books. Um, there are, there's a book by Valerie Mason John, who is a black lesbian in the movement, like Talking Black but it is amazing and I definitely think it was important because that was like so much of the discussion at the time as well you know the place of like uh, black queer women within the movement you know different exclusionary practices that were happening uh, within the black women's movement and then you know black queer women kind of just taking the reins and saying look like we are going to kind of fashion out this space for ourselves and they created this whole kind of discourse around um, you know the politics of um, you know the personal is political, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say, definitely investigate people like Gail Lewis, uh, Valerie Mason, John, um, who were prominent like black queer women within the movement. Uh, one of the pieces of advice I would give um, to black students overall is to kind of find a network within the institution. Um, it could be leading this, but it <laughs> could be, you know, your ACS or it could be, you know, something you start yourself, whatever it is, find a, a, a place where you feel comfortable, you'll know you'll get support because as much as our family and parents are, you know, they send us to university and they're so proud of us and we get there and they're like, yeah, he or she has made it <laughs> there now. Um, they don't necessarily understand what it's, it's sometimes like being in these institutions, especially mm. where you maybe are one of the few black students on your course or in your institution. So um, definitely seek support and don't feel like you have to do this alone. Um, and that also goes for those students who want to continue on in academia. Mm. You know, there are so many people now that are like on this path. Yeah. And, you know, we are challenging the sector and they're paying attention <laughs> <laughs> and um, people are getting funding <laughs> um, so yeah just kind of um, the information is not easily accessible we are trying to make it more accessible we are trying to democratise it but the information is out there so you know um, it's hard as well sometimes because sometimes I want to give that speech like keep going. <laughs> this is like, yeah. Me and Chantel, my colleague Chantel Lewis, we and friend, we talk about it all the time because it's like you want to say keep going, but you know you know that genuinely it is hard mm -hmm. and it doesn't get any easier once you do get the funding and you know once you do get your place. Um, but yeah, I would just say find support, find people that can help you, find people that you can just whinge to moan to yeah <clears throat> um and those people are out there they are yeah. yeah and i would also say something like really similar in terms of like establish like <coughs> your like support system and like 
networks like very early on you know like even with like applying for the phd that really took a village like it really wasn't you know i didn't <laughs> i remember when i was like yeah i'm gonna apply for a phd and this was in this was like a few months after i finished my master's i thought i was gonna apply for the following year um and it got to the december and i remember meeting with an academic and she was like you know the deadline is like <laughs> next week like and i was like oh yeah like i'll just write a proposal real quick it's, it's all good yeah exactly it's like i have like don't worry like i I've got this and then someone sent me like <laughs> a sample proposal I was like yeah I'm gonna be applying next year like <laughs> I need ready. more time like I need more time so you know and then after that like you know when I actually got my act together and um you know kind of started the application process from like August 2018 um you know I got in touch with so many different kind of like uh kind of colleagues and people already in the academy uh, who had finished their PhDs or were kind of in the process of doing it who like gave me so much like kind of feedback so much support um you know kind of like speaking consistently to uh, potential supervisors um and also just using you know <laughs> I use Twitter a lot, you know, kind of just asking questions on Twitter. I genuinely didn't know certain things. And I was like, okay, like academic Twitter, like tell me about this or like, how do I go about this? Like, what is the importance of this? So kind of just using all of those different like forms of kind of like networking or interacting with different people kind of, you know, really allowed me to uh, be able to kind of apply for those different places and get those scholarships. So I definitely wouldn't have been able to do it alone. I do think it's always good to like make use um, of, yeah, whatever support you have uh, there for sure. And so I know that you have so many exciting things coming up, the both of you, but I was wondering if you'd want to finish by telling us about any interesting initiatives or projects that are coming up. Like I saw that Leading Groups got this um, some fantastic yes. funding and partnership. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Mm-hmm. Thank you. So we, um, we have partnered with Sage Publishing um, and they're going to support um, three events next year outside of London because... Mm-hmm. We're in London, so everything happens in London. Yeah. It's, it's so much easier for us, but, you know, it is, it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now we have the resources to be able to, um, yeah, reach people, black people outside of London, which is really important. So we haven't confirmed up the cities yet, but if you're coming to a city, please show up. <laughs> that would be good. Um also, we next well, this is for next year really. We're working with Welcome Collection, and they have like a summer internship program for um, undergraduate students, and they've ring fenced two spaces for um, leading routes. So we'll make sure that at least two of those students come through our network, um, and they'll get mentored as well by um, academics within our network, which is pretty cool. Um, and our next event is um, at the British Library again, where we had our launch event last year and that's Black in Academia Stay in the Course so if you're interested in doing a PhD uh, we give advice on you know how to get a supervisor how to try and position yourself to get funding um, and I think that's the 11th of November um, and details will be coming soon wonderful that's amazing yeah as for me I need to finally start this PhD that I've been speaking about so much (laughs) I was like when are you going to start (laughs) yeah so um, I start my PhD in October um, over the summer and I guess for the rest of 2019 I'm working on like I said an oral history project with like older black women who came to Britain between like 1948 to 1968 Um, so I'm really excited about that Um, I'm doing quite a few different talks at different places Um, I've got a talk at the University of Kent in January already scheduled um, and a few kind of different things in between that I'll definitely be talking about like near the time so yeah I'm sure you'll see me talking about black British feminism somewhere <laughs> at some Twitter. point yeah or, or if not yeah catch me on Twitter <laughs> like <laughs> thank you both so much for being able to join me on the podcast um, thank you like yeah, I brilliant. really hope that well I hope to help you as much as I can in terms of like trying to make this type of structural and institutional change Um, But, and thanks listeners. I hope you learned a lot. I certainly did. Please rate, review, and subscribe and take care of yourselves.